Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday school class. Glad everybody can make it out here on this crisp uh, Sunday morning. Uh, I'm in a different place because last week where I was uh, teaching, by the time I got done class, the sun had went from the first stained glass window to the second stained glass window. It was shining right in my face and I could hardly see. So uh, I thought I would just uh, teach from up here this morning. Uh, I missed my stool, but I'll just tough it out for you guys. So hope everybody was able to get a, a coffee and a donut. And so let's go ahead and uh, open up our uh, Sunday school class with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for another opportunity to be out in your house this morning to learn about you. Um, I pray that you would just open up our hearts and our minds to your word, that we may understand your word in a more deeper, intimate way, so we could apply it to our lives and be able to relay and relate better, better to other people when we tell them about our faith, when you open the door for opportunity, or when we're asked to give an account of, of our faith to them. So Lord, we love you and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name, amen. So we just finished with the whole account of Noah and the flood, and, and now we're moving into uh, the life of Abraham. So before we delve into the actual events of Abraham, I thought we would kind of do like an Old Testament survey, and we would just go over Abraham's life, get to understand Abraham better as a person, understand more about his past and uh, where he came from and how that shaped the, uh, his character and who he, be, who he was and who he became. And it will probably help us to understand the stories regarding his life when we get into the details chapter by chapter. So just kind of background, background that the scriptures itself doesn't give you, but according to Jewish tradition, um, the traditions of the rabbis and sages, as well as extra biblical books, such as the book of Jubilees, the book of Jasher, uh, which Jasher is actually mentioned several times, at least twice in the canonical scriptures as we know it. And it gives a little background about Abraham's life. I touched on it slightly last week, so we'll just kind of recap. Now, Abraham came from a pagan family. Uh, his, his whole family were pagans. They, they worshipped many gods. As a matter of fact, his father, Terah, was uh, a pagan. He worshipped, uh, according to the book of Jasher and some uh, rabbinical midrash, he had a god for each month. And so each month of the year, there was a special God that he bowed down to, he worshiped, he presented food offerings to, etc. Not only that, that's how he made his living. He was an idol maker. Uh, he made the little you know, statues that people bought and everything. And as I'm learning more about pagan religions in the Old Testament, it's not only just like these pagan deities such as Baal and Molech, but if someone died, they would get an idol maker to make an image of their dead relative because the dead relatives were actually venerated and worshiped as well. They, you know, after somebody died, they were still an integral part of the family, even though they were dead. And there's a certain point in history where you will not find any graveyards because they believed uh, that they were still part of your family, even after death, that they actually buried their loved ones in their house under the floor. And they had these tubes, these libation tubes that went down into the ground and, uh, you know, basically was right at the face of their dead loved ones. And what they would do once a month, and it was usually the eldest son, um, and it could be the eldest daughter if, if the uh, person didn't have any sons, each month they would have a ritual, a necromancy ritual that was calling the dead back uh, for a special meal. 
and they would pour drink offerings and food offerings down in these tubes to their loved ones that were buried dead under their floor in their homes. Uh, it sounds very odd and very strange to us. And during this ritual, they would also ask them advice about, you know, what they should do in their life and things like this. So, uh, you know, I believe that um, uh, Abraham's father, Terah, probably made little statues of people's ancestors. And a lot of people believe and scholars are beginning to believe that maybe these were the household gods that Rachel stole when they left Laban's house. Remember, she put them in a saddlebag and she sat on the saddlebag when Laban was going through rip-roaring, tearing through all the tents, trying to find his gods. He said, whoever I find these gods with, they're going to die. And Rachel said, well, I'm sorry, I can't get up from where I'm sitting because it's my monthly period. Because back then, there was, even in the, among the pagans, there was clean and unclean and menstruating women were not allowed to interact or touch other family members for fear of being unclean. And so these household gods, as opposed to idols or gods, they believe that because it was household gods, it might have been dead ancestors, a representation of dead ancestors. So Terah was, uh, was an idol maker. Not only that, he served in Nimrod's court. Nimrod was the first world ruler, the first dictator, the first pagan king who went through the process of apotheosis, which means ascending to godhood. He believed he was part god. Many people believe this Nimrod is the same as Gilgamesh, because Gil Gilgamesh even said that he was one-third deity. He was one-third god. Uh, and as a result of him serving in Nimrod's court, there was uh, some signs in the heavens, and Nimrod's uh, astrologers said, uh, there's a sign in the heavens, and we predict that there's going to be somebody born uh, that's going to, uh, going to bring a ruin to your rule and your reign. So it, you know, by lots, by casting lots, by divination, they determined that it was going to be Terah's son, Abraham, that was born. So Nimrod basically said, I will compensate you if you give me your infant Abraham, Abram, and I'll kill him, the threat's over. Well, Terah didn't do this according to the book of Jasher. What he did is he got a slave's uh, child and pawned it off as, a, as his own. And so this slave's son was dashed to pieces by Nimrod and he was satisfied thinking the threat's over. And so Abraham went into hiding. And at first when he was young, uh, he was hid in a cave and nursed in a cave in the wilderness until he became older. And it said that through this process, that Abraham, through deductive reasoning, came to believe in one God. Because back then, it was believed that there were many gods. And there was a pantheon of gods that needed to be uh, supplicated and need to be pacified. And this pantheon of gods, the leadership could change. Because these pantheon of gods warred against each other and jockeyed for position uh, to be ruler. We see in some instances in history where uh, a certain god was ruler, uh, and then maybe this god's son took over. Uh, you know, at sometimes Baal was was the chief pantheon. Other times it was uh, um, Dagon or Chemosh or what have you, or even a goddess, um, Ishtar. So there were just different leaders of the pantheon throughout history because of the legends of them uh, fighting for uh, preeminence in the pantheon. So, you know, each god had a responsibility. One was over agriculture, one was over war, one was over the weather, one was over this and that. And so Abraham, when he was younger, he would go outside, he would look up at the sky, and it says that, you know, he saw the sun, and he was like, wow, the sun. You know, it, 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 you see it everywhere, it's powerful, you can feel the heat from here. This sun must be God. So he started worshiping the sun. 
Then night came, and then where was the sun? The moon came out and says, well, no, the moon overpowered the sun because it's total dark and, and, and the sun has no influence now. So maybe it's the moon that's God. So he started worshiping the moon. And then the sun came back up and he goes, well, no, that can't be true. So through process of elimination, he's like, there's got to be one God that's in charge and in control of all of this. So even at an early age, he became a monotheist. In other words, he only believed in one God, even though he was raised as a pagan, raised to believe that there were many, many other gods. So once he became of age, we're kind of assuming probably around 12 or 13 years old, he was sent off to his distant relatives, Noah and Shem. And Noah and Shem raised him and taught him more about this one true God he discovered on his own through deductive reasoning in the process of elimination. So he became a strong monotheist, and after he was an adult, and the threat was long past of Nimrod uh, trying to search for him and kill him, he came back and became a part of the family again. And uh, one day, and I think I told this story, but I, I love it. It's, it, I get a kick out of it. One day, Tara had some errands to run, business to do, and he had this idol shop. So he says, son, I want you to be in charge of the idol shop while I'm gone. And, you know, so he left, and uh, Abraham was just disgusted at all these gods, just totally disgusted. So he saw this pantheon of gods in, in this room that he worshipped, and each month he bowed down to a different one. There was a great one in the center that I guess was the, you know, the, the biggest and the baddest of them all. So he concocted this plan. He took an axe and smashed all of the idols, not only in, in Tara's personal place of worship, but in the idol shop, just, not, just destroyed them all. And he put the axe in the hand of the biggest god, of the biggest statue. His father came back. He's like, oh my, what happened, Abraham? Oh my goodness. You know, he says, well, dad, you'll never believe what happened. He said, this, uh, this God, he got jealous of all the other gods and wanted to be the only God, so he just destroyed them all. And he says, son, I didn't raise you to be a liar. He says, how, how, do you expect me to believe that? He says, well, father, how do you expect anybody to bow down to these things when they're not real? They're dead. They're just stone and gold and silver and wood and everything. And, you know, so he kind of convicted his father about his pagan worship. Uh, so Nimrod kind of got word that Abraham survived. He was back in town and got word that he destroyed all these gods. So basically, Terah ratted his own son out. He, he just kind of had the last straw. So what had happened then is he was taken to Nimrod's court. Nimrod decided to throw him in the fiery furnace to get rid of him. And by this time, he spent a lot of time with his family, and uh, his, his brother Haran, his older brother, was influenced by Abraham, and he started to you know kind of buy into this one God thing. So they threw uh, Abraham into the fiery furnace. Haran decided to join him, but he was still prideful. He wasn't in it totally on board. He was kind of in it for the show, thinking, well, if God's going to save Abraham, he'll save me too. Well, Haran died, and that's why it says that Haran died before his father Terah. That's why it says that in the scripture. It's mysterious. It's like, okay, why bring that out? Well, according to the book of Jasher, he died in front of Terah because he was thrown into the fiery furnace and didn't survive. Abraham survived. He was let go. And uh, um, so we come to the point now where uh, in Genesis chapter 12, that's where we'll begin. Genesis chapter 12 is where we start the account of Abram's life. Prior to that, it kind of had a little lineage, uh, lineage of who he was related to and, and related it all the way back to Noah and back to Shem. So it says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, Then Adonai said to Abram, 
Get going out from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house. So the Lord was saying, okay, you're different from them now. And you don't need to be around this negative pagan influence. They're not listening to you. I want you to get out on your own. I'm going to make a nation from you, separate from the family you came from. So he says, get out from your land, get out from your relatives, get out from your father's house, which was a very big deal back then. Because as I mentioned before about the relatives being buried underneath the floors, what if Abraham left and Terah died? Who would, who would supplicate? Who would feed Terah after he's dead? Because according to the beliefs of the afterlife uh, at this time is that if you did not have somebody who gave you food after you died and called you back for that ritual, then you would be forced to eat clay in the afterlife. And then you would be angry, you would be mad, you would haunt your relatives, you would be mad at your relatives, cause bad things to happen. So, you know, so as not to disturb the restless spirits, you offered these offerings. So just think of how intense that was, not just leaving your family and your friends and what was familiar to you in the land, but leaving your father and that responsibility, rejecting that responsibility. Um, now, some of, you know, we see that Abraham even kind of had a problem with this later on in his life when he didn't have any sons. The oldest son was called the pourer of water. So it was the oldest son's responsibility to do these libations after death and to give drink offerings and food offerings to the relatives, to the, the patriarchs after they're dead. So Abraham not only was, was concerned about not having a son to carry on his family line, his family name, his family lineage, but because he came from a pagan background, he still had a lot of pagan ideas and thoughts that God still had to straighten out. And so he said, well, Lord, what are you going to give me? Seeing as everything that I have is going to go to Eliezer of Damascus. Now it's interesting. That word Eliezer of Damascus, it, it really threw the translators for a loop. So they, they just said, well, this is Damascus. It, it probably means something else. This is not the traditional way we see the word Damascus, but this is the only thing we can think of that it is. But because of recent archaeological discoveries and discoveries of other ancient writings, it's been discovered that basically what Abraham was likely saying is not that this Eleazar was from Damascus, but this Eleazar would be the pourer of water. He would be the one that had the responsibility of doing these offerings to the dead after Abraham died. And Abraham didn't want to eat clay in the afterlife. Again, he came from a pagan background. He was just a baby in the faith of this monotheism, of this one true God. So he still had a lot of pagan ideas that as time, God would straighten out. So it's believed that, that, that maybe that Eleazar was not really from Damascus. He could have been, but he was probably going to inherit everything Abraham have had, thus be that uh, caretaker of the dead after Abraham was gone. And Abraham was concerned about this. So it says... Um, Get out from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God didn't even tell Abraham where he was going. He said, just go. I'll tell you when you get there. So just think of how nerve-wracking that might have been. Verse 2, my heart's desire is to make you a great nation and to bless you, to make your name great so that you may be a blessing. Now, Abraham's name is great because Abraham is the father of three of the most prominent religions on this planet. He's considered the father of Judaism. He's considered the father of Islam because he, you know, Ishmael is his son as well. Ishmael became, had 12 tribes. Ishmael became a mighty nation as God promised it would. 
And so the Ishmaelites also believe that they worship the God of Abraham. And, uh, but they worship him through the mode of Islam. And the third, um, the third uh, religion, of course, is Christianity. So Abraham is the father of the three monotheistic faiths on the planet. So his name has become great. My heart's desire is to make you a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great, so that you may be a blessing. So that's interesting. I like that. You're blessed to be a blessing. The reason that you have food, clothing, shoes on your feet, a roof over your head, food in your cupboards, the reason that you have a car and family and friends and your health and your strength, the reason that you have all of these things is you are blessed in order to bless other people. You're blessed to be a blessing. And people just want to say, oh, Lord, bless me. Bless me. They come to church. I want to feel the glory bumps of the Holy Spirit. I want to be blessed. Well, why do you want to be blessed? What's the reason you want to be blessed? Just so you could feel good? No, that's the wrong motive. We're, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. We're not to walk by our feelings. Those little goosebumps you have feels good, and it, it, it lets you know that you, the presence of the Holy Spirit's upon you, but it's gone as soon as it comes. You can't maintain that spiritual high and those spiritual goosebumps. That's just to let you know that God is touching you. You're not supposed to ride on that because it, it has to do with your feelings. We walk by faith, not by sight. So you are blessed to be a blessing. So Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever you curse, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So we know that anybody who has come against Israel, by all logical reasonings, Israel shouldn't exist. The state of Israel is only the size of the state of New Jersey. You can pretty much walk from one end to the other in a day and walk the breadth of it in a day. And you have all these Arab nations surrounding Israel. They have superior military, superior weapons. There's no reason why these Arab nations can't come together and wipe them off the map, push them into the sea as they claim they're going to do. And they've done it over. They've tried to do it over and over and over and over and over. The Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, all this. And they've not been successful. And there's even been accounts of these Arab nations saying that when they shot a missile into Israel, they literally saw an angel bat that missile away. This is, this is coming from the Arabs, not from the Jews saying, I saw this, but from the Arabs, their enemies. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. The gospel is the greatest blessing that was given to mankind. The promise of a redeemer, the promise of, of Messiah that came through Abraham's line and Abraham's seed. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this gospel message of Abraham, that a Messiah, that a, that, a, that a redeemer's coming, has been all over the world. And people have been saved from every tr tongue, tribe, and nation, and island. And, and So people have been blessed because of Abraham's obedience and Abraham's monotheism. Verse 4, so Abraham went, he was obedient. He went just as Adonai spoken to him. Also Lot with him. Now Lot was his nephew. That was, I believe, Haran's son. So he was orphaned in a way. And uh, so Abraham took him under his wing and apparently greatly influenced Lot. Lot was no longer a pagan. He worshiped the one true God. He believed in the God of Abraham. So now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all the possessions that they had acquired and the people that they had acquired in Haran, meaning household servants and things like that. Uh, and he had left to go to the land of Canaan, and they entered the land of Canaan. Now, let's focus just slightly on this, the, all their possessions that they had acquired, the people they had acquired in Haran. Now, a lot of people may not have ever thought about this, but Abraham... For Abraham to go into these different countries, to Egypt, to what would, we would know as the Philistine territory and Gerar, there's, there's the Pharaoh, there's King Abimelech, there's these kings, these rulers of these people that Abraham was rubbing shoulders with. He's, he's just a regular guy, right? Abraham, he's just a run-of-the-mill everyday Joe, just like everybody else at that time at that, no. Abraham was special. He had become rich. He had become powerful. So in essence, Abram was considered a great tribal ruler. He was kind of considered a king in some, some ways. Because not only did it says that he acquired uh, see all of their possessions. So you had all the tents. Not only their tent, but the tents of their servants, of their relatives that decided to go with him. They had flocks and herds. They had great possessions. Flocks and herds don't mean much to us today, but it was just as good as money in the bank back then. He was rich. All their possessions that they had acquired and the people that they had acquired in Haran. Now, remember when he goes to rescue Lot, he took so many hundred of his trained men to extricate Lot from this kidnapping from, you know. So he had his own army. Did you ever think about that? He had his own army. He had his own military. He was rich. He was powerful. He had great influence. Even though he was a nomad, he didn't have a territory that he ruled. He was considered by the pharaohs and considered by Abimelech of Gerar as a mighty man, a man of authority, a man that was rich, a man that was powerful. So he was almost like a king to them. If he was just a regular shepherd, a regular everyday Joe, they wouldn't give him the time of day. They wouldn't care. Because they had tons of shepherds, tons of people like that in their own kingdom. Why was Abraham so special? But when he entered the land, it immediately got the attention of the rulers of that land. Not only because his wife was hot, Sarah, and he had to, you know, purport this lie out of fear. Oh, she's my sister, which was a half-truth. <laughs> but because he got the attention of the rulers, it shows that Abraham was more than just a regular guy. That he was actually was a man of, of authority and a man of rule. So a lot of people may not have realized that or kind of thought about that. So those are verses 1 through 5. So uh, we're probably going to take this Sunday and maybe the next Sunday to talk about the life of Abraham, and I want to specifically hone in on his character. Now, we all think of Abraham as just being a monotheist, and we think of Abraham as, as kind of being a Christian almost. But remember, he came from a pagan family, so he had a lot of weird ideas that he was raised and brought up with, even after being uh, trained and taught and raised uh, by Shem and Noah, according to the book of Jasher, he still had a lot of pagan ideals he had to work out of his system. We see very early on that Abraham was not immediately a man of faith. He was to a degree, but what's the opposite of faith? Fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. We see through Abraham's life at the beginning he was very fearful. I'm afraid they're going to take my wife away from me. 
I'm afraid that they're going to kill me just to get my wife because she's so beautiful. So he lied, told a half-truth. Oh, well, she's my sister. Well, he was. She was. Half-sister, anyway. Uh, but the fear causes you to lie. So he wasn't this great man of faith and integrity to start out with. We see that God slowly molds him and shapes him into that, what we understand and know and lift up and exalt as Father Abraham we know today. So he still had a lot of these old ideas that he kind of had to work out that God had to set him straight on throughout his life. So we see, first of all, the first attribute that, that we recognize and the first attribute we think of is Abraham was a man of faith. So we see in verses one through four that we just read, it took faith. It took total belief and faith in this one and only God for him to reject all the pantheon. Now remember, these idols were fake. These idols weren't real, but the gods behind these idols, the gods that was represented by the, uh, these idols were very real because they were the fallen angels. And they took on these personas as false gods. So why do you think that the magicians in Pharaoh's court could do almost everything that uh, Moses and Aaron was doing? Because their gods had power too, except for their gods were not infinite. They were created, they were angels, and they had fallen. They were not omniscient. They didn't know everything. They might be able to see a little bit into the future or predict some things, but they didn't know it all. So these fallen deities, these, or these fallen angels who pawn themselves off as gods had power, do have power. That's why we see weird things happen in the supernatural in India and, and the witch doctors in Africa, because these gods, little g, are real because they're fallen angels that are pawning themselves off as gods. Now, it's not a total lie that the angels are telling that we're gods because when God describes, describes these angels, he calls them the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim. And later on, we get inducted into God's family and we are called the sons and daughters of God because of our joint, being a joint heir with Christ Jesus, being adopted into the royal family, so to speak. So it took a lot of faith for Abraham to say, yep, these other gods do exist but they're, they're finite, they're, they're inferior. There's no, one, there's no one that can compare to the one true God. There's a God that created it all. There's a God that, that is over it all. So Abraham come to that conclusion that there was one God, not many, and back then that was weird. And believe it or not, the word atheist was actually thrown around if you only believed in one God. That seems kind of strange because we know the word atheist as no God, believing in no God. But actually, that term was applied to people who were monotheists there for a short period of time. So it took, it, it took great faith for Abraham to leave his land, a place that he was familiar with, probably knew like the back of his hand, his family, his friends, his language, his culture, everything that he understood and knew. God said, get out of there. Leave your relatives. Leave your father. What's my dad going to think? Nobody's going to be able to give these libation offerings after, he, after he's dead. I'm going to be gone. What about my father, Terah? You know, there, all this was probably going through his head, but he was obedient. He left his land, his father's house. And, and, and the biggest thing, the biggest step of faith, is it's not so big of a deal if God says, I want you to go to such and such. Okay, I know where I'm going. Okay, let's go. But God just said, go. God didn't even tell him where he was going. He basically says, I'll let you know when you get there. That's faith just to step out your front door and just to go walking and not knowing where you're going to end up. Not, so we see that Abraham is a man of faith, and it's reiterated in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also get rid of every weight that entang- of an entangling sin, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 6, Because Adonai disciplines the ones he loves, and he punishes every son he accepts. And moving on to verse 8, But if you are without dis- discipline, uh, something all have come to share, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Besides, we are used to having human fathers as instructors, and we respected them. Shall Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Indeed, for a short time they disciplined us, as seemed best for them. But he does so for our benefit, so that we may share in his holiness. Jumping down to verse 17. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance of repentance, though he begged uh, with tears. And that was uh, talking about uh, Esau, I believe. For you have not come to a mountain that, that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to the darkness and gloom and storm, and the blast of the shofar, and the voice of the words made those who uh, heard it beg not another word be spoken to them. Okay, so we see that that um, that faith is involved here. That God uh, that God was like a father to Abraham. That he knew that Abraham or that God was uh, you know a father that loved him, that had the ability to guide him, direct him, discipline them, discipline him. And just as he as he was obedient to his father Terah, he was going to be obedient to his uh, to his father God. And uh, be set and set out. So let's let's turn back to uh, Hebrews chapter eleven. This is the faith chapter. So Hebrews chapter eleven, verse one, it says, "Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of of realities not seen." So faith is not this elusive thing uh, that we hope is real, that we might think is real. Uh, faith is something that we know is real. We just can't see it. We just can't touch it, taste it, smell it. It's just like the wind. You know, the wind is something we can't hold on to. We can't grasp. We can't even see the wind. We can see the effects of the wind because we could see the trees blowing. We can see the snow blowing in certain directions. But we can't touch the wind. We can't taste the wind. We can feel the wind, and we can see the evidence of the wind. But we know the wind exists, even though we can't see it. So it's like faith. Even though we can't really see Faith, faith is the substance. Substance means something that's real, something that's tangible, something that, that, that has substance to it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of realities not seen. Evidence of realities not seen. Realities, meaning that it's real. We just can't see them. We live in a three-dimensional world. You know, height, depth. You know, we, 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 we have a 3D perception. But if we lived... If we lived in a two-dimensional world, flatland, and let's say that uh, you know God decided to put His finger down into our reality, the only thing we would see is a pinpoint that got bigger and bigger and bigger and formed a circle, and we're like, "Wow, what's this circle?" Because we there's no three dimensions, so it's flat. So if God puts His finger down in our reality, all we see is a circle. We don't see a finger like in 3D reality. If it was 3D reality, we'd actually see the three dimensions of that finger. 
So there's another realm beyond this that we can't see. We can't really perceive with any accuracy, but we know it exists. We know angels exist. We know demons exist. Boy, do I know demons exist because I had a hard week this week. Um, you know, I, I felt like there was witchcraft being formed against me uh, from somewhere, but praise the Lord because everybody prayed that was taken care of. So it says, faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of reality is not seen so faith is something that is real, something that is not imaginary that we just kind of hope as we uh, in hope as a wish, but hope as in something that's real and it has substance. Verse six says, now without faith, so faith is something that's real again, something that's solid, has substance to it. It's not something that it's a, it's not a wish. It's not wishful thinking. It says now without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't please God without faith. The reason that you're saved is because you truly believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, and his death was your substitution. He took your place. His blood cleansed you, covered you, that your sins are no longer seen. You're seen as righteous before God. In order to truly be saved, you had to believe that. You didn't have to, well, I hope it happened. I hope it's true. You believed it. If you didn't believe it, you weren't saved. So it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, where you have to have faith and just say, I can't see it, I can't feel it, I can't perceive it, I, can't, I don't really know it with my, uh, my physical senses, but I know that I know that I know that this is true and that it's going to happen. So without faith, it is impossible to please God. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he migrated to the land of promise as if it were a foreign dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. From the get-go, God promised Abraham children. From the get-go, God promised Abraham land. Did he ever achieve it or see it in his lifetime? No. The only possession of land he had was the cave at Machpelah where he buried Sarah and where all the other patriarchs were buried. That's the only land he legally purchased that was legally his. But God said, I'm going to promise you this land. Do you believe me or not? Yeah, I believe you. You're going to have descendants that are gonna be more numerous than stars and sand. Did he see that in his lifetime? No, he just saw you know, uh, you know, Isaac and Ishmael. He didn't see this unnumberable descendants. Even though he didn't see it, he believed it. Even though he didn't occupy the entire land God said he was gonna give him, he believed it. He knew it was gonna happen. For he was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he believed in the land inheritance. He believed in the, chil in the, in the children that was going to be descended from him. So verse, uh, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Yes, he who received the promise was offered up his one and only son, Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son. Um, goes on to say, the one about whom it is said, through Isaac, offspring shall be named for you. He reasoned that God was able to raise him even from the dead. And in a sense, 
he did receive him back from there. So Abraham not only had faith to leave and go to where he had no idea where he was going, to go to a place he'd never seen before, just go, I'll tell you when you get there. Abraham had faith enough to do that. He had faith enough to believe when God covenanted with him and said, you're going to have land, you're going to have all this that you see, every place that you've set your foot, you and your ancestors are going to have and own. He also believed that one day his descendants would be as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Ooh, seashells, seashells by the seashore. (laughs) Uh, And believed that the descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars. So he believed that even though he didn't see it in his lifetime. So he also believed that if God said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, well, Isaac was the key to the whole thing. Isaac was the linchpin. You pull Isaac out of the equation, the whole house of cards falls. There is no land. There is no promise. There is no descendants because he already said it's not through Ishmael. It's through Isaac. Through Isaac will your descendants be named. Through Isaac is going to be the blessing. Through Isaac is going to be the redeemer. So you take Isaac out of this situation, it all falls apart. Where's the promises now? So logically, Abraham was thinking, well, gee, if God wants me to sacrifice Isaac, the only logical thing that that could happen, the only way this could end is that if I sacrifice him, he's going to raise him from the dead. Because how else is the promise going to continue? Because he said it was going to be through Isaac, not through a child after Isaac, not through Ishmael, his older brother. It was going to be through Isaac. So Abraham literally believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead after he sacrificed him. Now, I've mentioned this before in past teachings and past sermons, but think about this. We see this Renaissance painting, I think it's Rembrandt, where Abraham was offering up Isaac, and he has this knife raised and was about ready to plunge it into Abraham's chest, or to Isaac's chest, into his heart and kill him. That's not the way a sacrifice went down. Abraham was going to be a burnt offering. It just doesn't mean that he was going to kill him and he was considered sacrifice. By the way, you can't sacrifice an animal by plunging a knife into the heart. That makes the sacrifice invalid. The only prescribed way, according to Scripture, to sacrifice is you had to slit jugular to jugular because that is the most humane and quickest way to dispatch a sacrifice. The animal doesn't even feel it. The animal faints because of the rush of the loss of blood. And the, the knife is supposed to be so sharp that, you can't, that, that they don't even feel it. Have you ever had like a paper cut or got cut and you just didn't know it and all of a sudden you look down and your, your finger's all blood and you're like, wow, when did this happen? How did this happen? You got cut by something that was so sharp you didn't feel it. That's the way a sacrifice is supposed to be. So, according to, and now remember, Isaac, Abraham was in his hundreds, Isaac was in his thirties. Pretty easy for a 30-some-year-old to overtake a 100-year-old. There ain't no way you're going to sacrifice me, Dad. I'm going to beat you up and run away because I want to live. So there's no reason why Isaac couldn't got, got, got out of this. So Isaac, too, believed and had faith that what Abraham was doing was from God and that, that Isaac, whether he lived or died, it was going to be the will of God. And Abraham believed that Isaac was going to be raised from the dead. Remember the scenario when he saw Mount Moriah three days away, he said to his servants, by the way, according to the book of Jasher, it's believed that his servants were Eleazar and his son Ishmael. He said, you guys stay with the, with the donkey. We're going to go up to Mount Moriah and worship. And it says, we will return to you. Not me, not I, not just me. So he said, we, implying that Isaac was going to come back too. He believed that Isaac was going to survive this and Isaac was going to come back from the sacrifice. So according to the book of Jasher and Jubilees, Isaac helped 
helped Abraham build this altar. And he said, Father, bind my hands, bind my feet, blindfold me, because I don't want to become um, a, 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 um, an invalid sacrifice. Because, you know, the, the, we, we are born with that self-preservation. That's why we have a fear of heights. We have a fear of falling. We have a fear of death. Because we have that God built that into our being that we want to preserve our life at all costs. It takes an extraordinary event for us to want to sacrifice our life for somebody or for something. So Abraham, or Isaac admitted that you know, the, 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 the desire for life is strong. So bind me so I can't get away. Blindfold me so I can't even see it coming. So the, the, it would, Isaac would have been slit from ear to ear. And after that, he would have been quartered and halved. He would have been laid on the altar and he would have been burnt to ash. It's one thing to believe that somebody's going to come back from the dead after you slit their throat. That's not too big. The whole body's still there. God can miraculously close up the wound, or maybe you didn't really cut as deep as you thought you did. Maybe the person passed out and just revived later. So there's that possibility you can believe in a resurrection from that. But you can't believe in a resurrection from ash. There's nothing left to reconstruct. There's nothing left to raise from the dead. It means that God would have to perform what he did with Adam in the garden and form him out of the dust, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He, that's the way God would have had to have raised Isaac from the dead if God would have permitted Abraham to go through that sacrifice. And Abraham had such faith, not a hope, not wishful thinking. He truly believed that Isaac was going to be raised from ash. That's faith. That's amazing faith. So uh, in James 2.20, it says, Faith without works is dead. It's one thing to believe it. It's one thing to say you believe it. It's another to back up your faith by action. I mean, I could... I mean, how many would, how many would be afraid to jump out of an airplane to go skydiving? I mean, I would. It's natural. That's a natural fear. We're not meant to fly like birds. We're not meant to jump off high things and survive. But let's say that, that I go through the training to jump out of an airplane and you know I put on the, 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 the flight suit and I put on the parachute and everything. My faith is going to be in that parachute. That faith is going to be in the training that I received in order to jump out of that plane. Now I could say, oh yeah, I know I can skydive. Oh, I believe I can skydive and survive. I believe that. Well, big deal. Back it up, big guy. If you believe it so well, jump out of that plane. You've had your training. You had the parachute. If you really believe it, you do it. Fine, I will. Go up in an airplane, and I'm trusting in my training, and I'm trusting in that parachute, and I skydive. Faith without works is dead. I can believe all that I want that I can jump out of a plane. But if I don't do it, it doesn't really prove anything. I have to back up my belief and my faith by my actions. So I, I go through the training. I put on the jumpsuit. I put on the parachute. I go up high and I jump out. Pull the ripcord. Land safely. I've proved it. Faith without works is dead. This is exactly what Abraham did. He could have said, oh yeah, I believe God could raise Isaac from the dead. Sure, no problem. But if he never did it, where would his faith be? It's just all words, all talk. Abraham had to put action so he was about ready to slit Isaac's throat when all of a sudden the angel of the Lord said, Stop! Abraham! Abraham! Wait, wait, what? What? And maybe Abraham had an inkling that Isaac wouldn't be sacrificed. Maybe something miraculous would happen. Because 
when it says that says Isaac goes, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? According to the Hebrew, you could translate it like this. We've heard it says that God will provide uh, a lamb for the sacrifice. According to the Hebrew, you could translate it, God will provide himself. God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Kind of hinting and alluding to and foreshadowing Yeshua that God was going to bring the lamb of God in the future to redeem the world. God will provide himself the lamb. So what had happened? There was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. He sacrificed the ram and Isaac. But Isaac was as good as dead because if that ram was not there, there's no question, no doubt that Abraham would have went through that sacrifice because it, it says in Hebrews, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Yes, he who had received the promise was offered up as, uh, as his one and only son, the one about whom it is said, through Isaac, offspring shall be named. He reasoned, Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise him from the dead. And in a sense, in a sense, he did receive him back from the dead because Isaac was as good as dead. He was going to go through with it. No question, no flinching, no stopping, no hesitation. It had to be an angel of the Lord from heaven to literally hold back his hand and stop him and say, Abraham, look, there's a ram. Or else he would have sacrificed. So Isaac was dead. He was as good as dead. So Abraham, we see, is a man of faith. A man of faith. If I was Abraham and I was in his shoes, I don't think I could have done or believed those things. I would have probably logically reasoned, well, maybe I had too much wine to drink. Maybe I ate a mushroom that I wasn't, didn't know was magic. Maybe that, you know, this is just weird dreams. Maybe it's actually demons that are talking to me. Maybe it's false gods that are trying to trick me into killing my son. There's all these other explanations that could have, be, that could have been. But Abraham had faith and said, no, I know that I know that I know because I believe God. He's been faithful so far, and I know it was him. I know this is what he wants me to do. That's pretty amazing faith. He is the father of our faith. You know, he's the one, he's the, he's the father of Judaism, of Christianity and Islam. So he is the first guy who kind of started it all. So he was a man of faith. Not only that, but he was a man of action. That's a problem we have in our church. People say they believe, but they don't put the actions to the word. Right? Faith without works is dead. You have to have action in order to substantiate or to prove or to back up your faith. So in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham to go, right? So it says then, Adonai said to Abraham, get out of your land. And then verses 4 and 5, it says, so Abraham went. God said, go. Abraham obeyed. He was a man of action. He didn't drag his feet. He didn't hesitate. Not only that, he was also a man of action because think about this. Let's see here. All right. He was a man of action because remember when God said to circumcise himself and to circumcise Ishmael, right? Abraham was like, what, pushing 100, right? In his hundreds when he was circumcised. It doesn't take a genius to understand and realize that's painful. You're going to be sore for like a week after. And it was because of, of the people of Shechem who were willing to circumcise their whole tribe in order to marry in to Jacob's family. And then Levi and, and Simeon rose up 
and slaughtered the men of Shechem three days after their circumcision because it was the most painful day of the circumcision. So back to Abraham and his circumcision. Three days later, where was he? Setting in, setting in front of his tent, of the door of his tent, in the heat of the day, he had all the sides of his tent open so he could see the horizon to see if there was any travelers because he was known as a man of hospitality. We'll get into that later. He was a man of hospitality, and he would invite strangers or people that were traveling the desert in and invite them so they could refresh themselves so that they could eat, wash their feet, rest a little bit, and he can tell them about the one true God. So it was the third day of his circumcision that God showed up with his angels. He automatically knew that it was God in a manifest form that he could see, taste, or that he could see, touch, and, you know, handle. And what, what does the scripture say? Abraham grabbed his loins and apologized to the Almighty. Oh, Lord, thanks for coming to visit me, but I'm sorry I can't be hospitable because of what you asked me to do. <sighs> Come back maybe in a week. No. It says that Abraham made haste. Abraham hurried. He jumped up. He ran to Sarah. Get some bread made. Go to his servant. Get, you know, slaughter, slaughter uh, some meat. We're going to have a feast. He didn't let that circumcision stand in his way. Why? Because he was a man of action. He didn't let his pain and his incapacity and his injury, his recent surgery, to be an excuse not to move and act and work and obey and serve God. He served God despite his circumcision, despite his pain. He was a man of action. Not only that, but we already discussed how he was a man of action because when God said, sacrifice your son, yep, okay, Lord, no question about it. We'll do, good is done. He was a man of action. He didn't drag his feet. He didn't ask questions. He wasn't faithless. He didn't question God. He didn't question himself. He did what God said. If God told Abraham to jump, Abraham would say, how high, Lord? So he was a man of action. So back to Hebrews 11, 17. Oh, we just, we read that. So I'm not going to read that over again. So it's talking about the sacrifice of, of Isaac. So we see so far in our first lesson regarding the character and the life of Abraham that Abraham was a man of faith and Abraham was a man of action. So he backed up his faith by what he did. He, just, he wasn't all talk, he was action as well. So we're going to stop right there and we're going to pick it up next week and discuss the other characteristics of Abraham just to give you a heads up. Abraham was a man of obedience. He was a man of humility. He was a man of selflessness. He was a man of bravery, he was a man of hospitality, and he was a man of love. And so we're going to discuss those things next week regarding the life of Abraham. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to gratefully thank you, Lord, for another day of life, for everything you've done for us and everything you've given us, and for the, a great father of our faith, the one who kind of kicked it off and started it all, the one that you chose to make a great nation out of. And what a great example his life is to us. And the character traits that you developed in him throughout his life are the same ones that we could apply to ourselves. And kind of as a foreshadowing, studying the life of Abraham, we see that Abraham, his characteristics were basically that of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. He embodied those things that Yeshua was and is. He was a foreshadowing of that Redeemer that you promised would come from his loins. So, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for that. Help us to be like Abraham. Help us to be loving, brave, compassionate, uh, faithful, uh, a person of action, uh, selfless, humble. 
Lord, we love you and praise you and ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.